to call his children home to be with him for all of eternity. Amen. That's why we praise our great God. Thank you, Luke, for leading us this morning and worship team for leading us this morning. If you have your copy of God's word, I invite you to take it and to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 is where we are this morning. We will be finishing out this chapter Revelation chapter 11. We spoke last week, we dialogued a little bit about the reality of witnessing. When you desire to tell somebody something that you love so much, you've seen a movie, you've heard a song, uh, you've read a book, and you cannot contain your excitement, and you want so desperately for other people to enjoy it with you that you just can't hold it in. You tell people, you've got to see this, you've got to hear this, you've got to watch this with me. We talked a little bit about evangelism with the, the two witnesses last week. Well, continuing with that metaphor, have you ever had the experience, I'm sure you have, because I've spoken with many of you about this incredibly awkward moment where you go to show somebody something that you love, this amazing movie, this awesome book, this great song, and you, you show them, maybe it's like a YouTube clip, you open it up, you show it to them, and you're just cracking up inside because you think it's the coolest thing, it's the funniest thing, and you don't see even a smile cross their face. Have you ever been there before, right? You're like, this is the coolest thing ever. And then out of their mouths come those terrible words, I don't get it. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, cool for you, and I'm glad you enjoy it, but I don't get it. Can we be honest this morning? I think when we speak of Jesus Christ, even when we sing about him, right? We just sang about an invisible God that we cannot see. And I think the world, if, if the world were to, to come in through these doors, maybe even some of you here this morning, you watch our excitement, our passion, you hear the love that we have for Jesus, and the world says, I don't get it. I don't get it. What am I missing? Well, why is God so amazing to you? I don't understand. As you share the gospel with people, I'm sure that you will run into this scenario where you are just sharing with passion, Jesus is my everything. And they just seem to say, I don't understand. I don't get it. It's fine for you, but doesn't make sense to me. I believe what we will see this morning at the end of Revelation chapter 11 will enable us to answer that question. Why is Jesus worthy of our affections? If somebody were to say to you, I don't get it. What is so amazing about Jesus? Well, these verses will answer that question. What's so amazing about our God? Why can we not help but praise him? Well, let's listen to John as he writes in Revelation Chapter 11, verse 15, through the end of the chapter. John writes, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, 
O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Would you pray with me? Father, we long for the world to see why you are so worthy of our praise, our affection, our adoration. You're worthy of everything. You're worthy of our very lives. And we long to see that ourselves. God, for those who are believers here in this room, we long to see anew and afresh how amazing you are. But we cannot see that apart from your spirit. Just as we studied this last week in Ephesians chapter 1, as Paul prayed, open the eyes of our heart to see Christ. So, Father, we ask that you would be gracious to us and open the eyes of our heart to see, to adore you anew and afresh. Father, for those either in this room or watching online that that don't know you, or, or maybe they know about you, but they don't love you, or maybe they don't even really know about you, or, or maybe they would say, I see everyone around me getting excited about God. I see that they've committed their life to him. I see that they've given everything for him, but I just don't get it. Father, I pray that you would be pleased to open eyes this morning. Not physical eyes, but spiritual eyes, so that while seeing, they would actually see what the scriptures say about how amazing you are. That they would bow the knee to Christ as Lord and Savior this morning. Not just knowing right things about him, but treasuring those truths, loving him more than anything in this world. Father, we ask for the impossible apart from your spirit. There is nothing we can do to make these things happen. We are completely dependent upon you. So take this sermon, and multiply it in the exact same way that you did with the fish and the loaves so long ago. We give it to you as an offering, and we ask that you would multiply it. And we, we sit here before you, our great God, and we say with Samuel, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. In these verses, we will see six different reasons why God is worthy of our praise, our adoration, our affection, our everything. If you're telling somebody about God and they say, I just don't get it. I don't understand why he's so amazing. I want to show you six reasons why he is amazing, why he is worthy of every fiber of our being, worshiping him, holding nothing back, completely unrestrained in our affections for Christ. Reason number one found in verse 15 is that God is king and he reigns in goodness. God is king and he reigns in goodness. 
Verse 15, the seventh angel sounds, so we are here towards the very end of these trumpets. Remember, we already looked at the seven seal judgments, and then we have been looking at the seven trumpet judgments. Here, the seventh angel sounds that final trumpet judgment, the third woe that John spoke of a few chapters ago. This time, this trumpet, the seventh trumpet after the interlude, this time there's something different than we saw with the seventh seal. You remember with the seventh seal, when it was open, there was silence in heaven for a half an hour. Here, when this trumpet is sounded, there is so much praise and excitement. Just like the seventh seal, there's nothing happening on earth yet. It's all being done in heaven. But unlike the seventh seal, this trumpet, when it sounds, there is so much rejoicing There's so much excitement. There are loud voices John sees and hears and writes in verse 15. And you remember that these these trumpets, the seventh trumpet is going to unfold seven bowl judgments, right? The final judgments that are going to uh, be poured out upon the world in the end times. These judgments, these seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, they're Really, like, I don't know if you've ever taken some of those online survey questions where you click on the last one, right? It says, final question. Thanks so much for your time. Then you click on it, and it opens up, like, 38 more questions that are underneath it. That's what's happening here, right? We're going to blow the last trumpet. It's going to be sounded, and as it sounds, there's going to be seven bold judgments that are going to flow out from this last trumpet. So this trumpet contains inside of it the final judgments that are going to bring about Uh, God returning to earth, bringing about his kingdom, establishing his kingdom in righteousness for a thousand years. And it's all contained in this seventh trumpet. So this trumpet sounds and there are loud voices and they say together, we don't know who they are, but they say together, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. They are rejoicing because God is king and God has won. God has won. The nations are doing everything that they can to overthrow God, but God is going to win. The nations cannot overthrow our king. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God. God has uh, owned it. God has overthrown everything that they're trying to do and has owned it for himself. Turn back to the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, chapter 2, which this section of Revelation is really just the New Testament's recording of what Psalm 2 talks about. But in Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, the psalmist writes, Why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising a vain thing? They're in an uproar and they're devising something that's vain, empty, it's worthless, it's useless. What are they trying to do? Verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Christ, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice, this is how unbelievers view God. They view God as giving chains and shackles and bonds to them. The commandments of God to non-believers are binding and imprisoning and oppressive. So they say, let's throw them away. Let's tear off their commands. Let's tear off God's laws. And in fact, let's go after God himself and kill God so that we can be God. That's what the nations are trying to do. 
In contrast, believers view the laws that God gives as for our good, satisfying for God's glory and for our greatest joy. We don't view the laws that God gives as some cosmic killjoy wanting to squish our fun. No, the laws that God gives are for our greatest joy. He's the author of life. He's the one who made everything. He knows how it's best operated. And so he gives us laws for our greatest benefit, to keep us safe, to give us joy and happiness. So as the nations in unbelief rage against God, what does God do? Verse 4, he sits in the heavens and he laughs. He scoffs at them. How, How can they come after him? How can they destroy him? He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten begotten you. Ask of me, I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. That's what's happening in Revelation 11. The nations and the very ends of the earth are now becoming the Lord's. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Revelation chapter 11 is the New Testament fulfillment of everything that's taking place in Psalm chapter 2. God is ruling as king. He's reigning over all of the kingdoms of this world. Back in Revelation chapter 11, in verse 15, it's very interesting to know. It says the kingdom of the world, not the kingdoms. It's not plural. The kingdom, singular, the one kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Why? Why this one kingdom? Because all of the kingdoms, plural, of the world are under control and rule of Satan. Three times in John's gospel, John writes that Satan is the one who owns and controls this world. This world system is owned and operated by the devil. He is the ruler of this world, the ruler of the prince and the power of this air, this present darkness. Therefore, all of the nations, all of the kingdoms together ultimately represent one kingdom against God. And God says, I can take that kingdom and make it my own. The kingdom of the world, Satan's reign, Satan's domain has become the kingdom of our Lord and of of his Christ. Now, one of the questions I have as I read that as a grammar nerd, when it says the kingdoms of the world has become, the kingdom has become. It's become now, it seems like the text is saying. It's become the kingdom of our God now. But I look around and I see evil winning. I see evil reigning in this world. So what is the the, the present tense here of having done so now? The kingdom has come now. That's a really, really interesting way that the, the Greek verb tense is used. In Greek, in English, our verb tenses are always used to speak of progression of time. That's why we have a past tense, a present tense, a future tense. Greek isn't like that. Greek words have tenses based on how the action is being experienced. One of the verbs that is used, one of the verb tenses that is used in Greek is a timeless tense. It's called the aorist tense. And aorist just means no horizon. There's there's no tomorrow. There's no past. It's just timeless. It's forever. It doesn't have a time component to it. So the aorist is saying an action could be now, it could be in the past, it could be in the future. There's no real time component to it. Instead, it's the experience of this thing happening, and there's never a time when it doesn't exist. 
We don't have verb tenses like this in English. I wish we did. It would be really cool if we did. So in effect, this verb, the kingdom of the world, has become. That's in the aorist tense. So it means it's a timeless existence. Though it's breaking in slowly but surely, and it's already been inaugurated, and it's yet to be consummated, it exists. It timelessly exists. Has there ever been a time when the world was not God's, when God didn't own the world? No, God's always owned the world. But there's been a time when God has given that world to mankind. We have tried to take it away. Satan has owned it and ruled it. And yet there will be a time in the near future when God will say enough. Right now he is waiting. He's longing for everyone to come to repentance and faith in him. But there will be a time when God says enough. And I've come to take the world back. That's what's happening here. It's a beautiful tense in the Greek to say, it's already broken in and it has yet to happen fully, but there's no stopping it. There's no stopping it. It's as good as done. It's as good as finished. Therefore, we can speak of it having already taken place, even though it, yet, it is yet to come. Christ has already been glorified, highly exalted. Now in heaven, as we sing, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. He is king and he sits on a throne Satan has already been defeated. He's done. There's no way he's going to win. He was defeated at the cross. Therefore, number one, if somebody asks me, why do you worship God? What's so great about God? I would say to you, he's king. But notice I said he reigns in goodness. He's king, but he's good. It's not good news if all we have is a king reigning over us period, end of statement. That's not good news because the king might be evil. The king might be mean. The king might be bad. But we have a king who is good in all that he does. Remember the psalmist says, you are good and you do good. Therefore, we have a king who owns every single molecule in the universe and he is good in the way that he operates everything. So, we worship our God because he is king and he reigns in goodness. Secondly, number two, second reason why we have to worship God, he is trustworthy and he fulfills his promises. He is trustworthy and he fulfills his promises. This is also in verse 15 because John hears these voices saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, Christ is the Greek word for uh, the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. It just means anointed one. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew, the word Mashiach. In the New Testament, in Greek, the word Christ, Christos. They're the same exact thing. They just mean anointed one, king. Who is this Messiah? This is Jesus. Jesus, the Christ, right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. He is Jesus, the Messiah. The reason why I say that God is trustworthy is God the Father promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that there would be someone who would come to take this world back from Satan, to crush the serpent's head. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they sin. Satan tempts them, lures them away from the goodness of God, the holiness of God. They sin, and all of humanity and all of the world is plunged into the curse of sin, the fall. But God says, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to come. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to reverse the curse. I'm going to take it away. And I'm going to do that by crushing the serpent's head. 
there's a promise that God gives. And the promise that God gives is that one coming from the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. One from the seed of the woman. When Satan hears that, he knows his objective. It's clear. I just need to kill the seed of the woman. You ever wonder why the very next account in the Bible is Cain and Abel and Cain trying to kill Abel and finally successfully doing so? Why is that happening? Why does it move so quickly from I'm going to eat a piece of fruit to I'm going to kill my brother? Why? Because the devil is trying to bring about the destruction of all of humanity because he knows, he heard the promise. If the, the seed of the woman grows up, is able to have more kids and more kids and more kids, one day somebody's going to show up to destroy me, Satan's thinking. He knows this promise. And so he says, I'm going to kill all of humanity. It doesn't work. Abel dies, Cain lives, others are born. That's what happens with the whole Nephilim. You remember that? In Genesis chapter 6, where there's an intermarriage with demons and women, and they're trying to, uh, Satan's just trying to bring about this crazy, angelic super race that will destroy all of humanity. Why is he trying to do that? Because if he can get rid of humans, he can get rid of the promised one who's going to destroy him. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we find out it's not just a human, it's going to be a Jew from the line of the Hebrews, from the line of Abraham. Then end of Genesis, we find out it's going to be from the line of Judah, and then from the line of David, and then born in the town of Bethlehem. We're going to see all of this in Revelation chapter 12. This is why the devil is going after the Jewish people, why the devil is going after Herod to try and get Herod to kill all the male babies that were born in Bethlehem. This is why this is all happening. God made a promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15, and it was a hard promise to fulfill. But he made sure that it came about. God's plans will never be thwarted. You can mark it down, trust it, money back, guarantee, take it to the bank. God's promises will always come to pass, always. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Messiah has come. Messiah has died. Messiah has risen from the dead. And Messiah now rules and reigns. There's no stopping it. And notice the end of verse 15. He's going to reign forever and ever. This is from the Old Testament. The government will be upon his shoulders. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. There's going to be an end to evil. There's going to be an end to sin. There's going to be an end to suffering. There's going to be an end to sorrow. There's going to be an end to this sinful world, but there's going to be no end to our Savior's rule and reign. If you see that for what it truly is, that he will reign forever and ever, it truly changes everything about the way that we live our lives. That's why all of heaven just breaks forth in worship. We have a king who has come in his goodness, and he's never going to stop ruling and reigning, but reign forever. I wonder, are those words familiar to your ears? And he will reign forever and ever. In a small London house on Brook Street, a servant sighed with resignation as he arranged a tray full of food that he assumes will not be eaten. For more than a week, he has faithfully continued to wait on his employer, who is an eccentric composer who spends hour after hour isolated in his own room. 
Morning, noon, and evening, the servant delivers meals to the composer and returns later to find the bowls and platters largely untouched. So once again, he steals himself to go through the same routine, muttering under his breath about how oddly temperamental musicians can be. Yet as he swings open the door to the composer's room, the servant stops dead in his tracks. The startled composer, tears streaming down his face, turns to the servant and cries out, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. Given the fact that just a few days earlier, this composer had been drowning in debt and had been living with the expectation that he would soon be thrown into debtor's prison, this is a very strange feat. But two unforeseen providences forever changed this man's life. First, a dear friend provided him with a set of lyrics based on the life of Christ taken entirely from the Bible. And he asked this composer to write music to them. Secondly, and altogether unrelated, a Dublin charity commissioned this composer to work on a, a new piece of music for a benefit performance. Recognizing the opportunity before him, the composer quickly wed the two requests into one and immediately set himself to the task of composing an oratorio to the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He grew so absorbed with his work that he rarely left his room, hardly stopping to eat. Within six days, part one was complete. Nine days later, part two was finished. And another six days, part three was done. He completed the orchestration for 35 instruments in two days. All in all, 260 pages of manuscript were filled in the remarkably short time of 24 days. He had not left his house once during those three and a half weeks. One of his biographers summed up the consensus of history when he said this, considering the immensity of the work and the short time involved, it will remain perhaps forever the greatest feat in all of music composition. The man's name? George Frederick Handel. And the title that he assigned to his masterpiece was very simply Messiah. Messiah premiered at a charitable benefit in April of 1742, raising 400 pounds and freeing 142 men from debtor's prison. Throughout the following years, Handel himself conducted the Messiah 30 times, donating much of the revenue to various charities. In fact, one historian has written that Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan more than any other single musical production in this or any other country. And he's probably done more to convince thousands of mankind that there is a God about us than all the, the theological works ever written. Have you heard the Messiah? You remember as it finishes and it comes to a culmination? The hallelujah chorus. He will reign forever and ever. If you've been to a performance of Messiah, you know that there is a particular moment when that chorus begins, where everyone stands up. If you've never been, it can be a bit jarring to experience that. You're just sitting there enjoying the music, then all of a sudden, the chorus starts going and everybody just stands up. You wonder, what am I doing? Why? Okay, I guess we're up. Here we go. Why 
does everyone stand? In 1743, the King of England, George II, attended a performance of the Messiah. At one particular moment, he was so moved by a phrase sung by the choir that he stood to his feet in reverence. Following royal protocol at the time, the entire audience stands with him, which initiated a tradition that has lasted for more than 200 years today. What was it that made the king of England stand to his feet in reverence? What line made the king of England stand to his feet in worship? It was this line right here. The Father's Messiah will reign forever and ever. I mean, imagine King George. He knows I'm not going to reign forever and ever. I know I'm not going to make it forever and ever. Uh, there's an end to my reign, just like there was an end to my dad's reign, just like there will be an end to my son's reign. But there is one who will reign forever and ever. That was the very portion that Handel himself, when he read it, exclaimed to his servant years earlier, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. Why do we worship our God? Why do we worship our king? If somebody were to say, I don't get it, tell me, what is it all about? I'd say, number one, God is king and he reigns in goodness. Number two, he's trustworthy and he fulfills his promises but that's not the end. Number three, our God is almighty, all-powerful, and he works with powerful patience. Our God is almighty, all-powerful, and he works with powerful patience. This is verses 16 through 17. The 24 elders, which we've seen seven times thus far in the book of Revelation, they are either representation of the church or they're some high-ranking ranking official uh, of angels and um, maybe an, an office of angelic beings. They are sitting on their thrones before God, but they get off and they fall down on their faces and they worship God. Notice what they say. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty. In Hebrew, El Shaddai, the, the Almighty One, the One who has all power, the omnipotent ruler, who are and who were, Notice what's missing there. The normal construction, who was, who is, and what? Who is to come? That's missing. Who was, who are, presently existing. Who were, who was, who was in the past. But no, who is to come. Why? Because this is a prefiguring of Christ's coming to us. He is coming back. And this is saying it's as good as done already. As one author says, there can be no future once futurity has been removed from the name of God. This is the end. Future is over. We're done. All of human history is finished. We give thanks to you, O Lord, our God, the Almighty, who are and who were. Why? Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign, literally, and now have begun to reign. There was a time when you allowed the kingdom of this world to reign, but now you have begun to reign. And you have taken your power, and you are reigning permanently. The, the Greek tense there is the idea of permanence. It will never again be taken out of your hand. 
There's a specific time when this is occurring. Verse 18, you can see that the nations were enraged. Your wrath came and the time came for the dead. There's a time, there's a, a day, there's an event coming. And the 24 elders are just blown away that God has waited and waited and waited and waited. And now with his power, he brings about his kingdom. One writer says it this way, history won't last forever. Evil won't triumph. Good will triumph and God will reign forever. He will take the reins of history into his hands and dispense justice to every person. Things are askew now. And evil often profits the wicked. Believers are tempted to despair and to discouragement, but we should be full of optimism and hope. For the triumph of evil is short-lived. The end is coming. The perfect world we long for, the world where Christ reigns, will become a reality. And so in the meantime, we wait. We wait because God's waiting. And why is God waiting? We've seen this over and over again in the book of Revelation. He's waiting because he desires that no one would perish, but that all would come to faith and repentance in him. If he comes now, that's the end. Those who have rejected him don't have a second chance if Christ comes today. So he's waiting. He will bring about his kingdom. That's why I say he is almighty, but he's also working with powerful patience, waiting for all to come to faith and repentance. He's wooing, he's pleading, he's begging, he's asking you to come to him. And he's using you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, he's using you as an ambassador to go into the world, to tell the world there is an amazing God who's pleading with you to be reconciled to him. He is king, he is trustworthy, he is almighty. Number four, he is righteous and judges with perfect equity. He is righteous and judges with perfect equity. Some people look at the God of the Bible, and one of the things that they don't get as we're looking at this idea of showing them God and how amazing is this God, and they say, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. One of the things that most people, I, I believe, struggle to understand is the goodness of God and the fairness of God in his judgment. I just had conversations with non-believers this last week, many conversations with many non-believers, and there's a common thread throughout all of them. The common thread is, why doesn't God, if he is all-powerful and he is all-holy and he is all-loving, why doesn't he just snap his fingers and forgive everybody? There's a, a number of answers to that. Uh, they'll, they'll ask me, you know, God can do anything he wants. Why doesn't he just snap his fingers? And I'll say, well, actually, it's a faulty premise. He can't do anything he wants. God can do anything inside of his nature, but God cannot do things. There are things God cannot do, and that's a very good thing for you and for me. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. God cannot change. And that's a huge difference between the God of the Bible and the God of Islam. The God of Islam changes. He's a practical jokester. He changes his mind. He tells his people to do something, then he says, actually, no, it's the opposite. Ha ha. Our God doesn't do that. The God of the Bible, there are many things that our God cannot do because they're outside of his nature to do it. And so praise God he can't change. Praise God he can't sin. Praise God he can't lie. So if somebody says God can do anything he wants, why doesn't he just snap his fingers and make everybody forgiven? Well, God can't do anything outside of his nature, and that's outside of his nature because God is a just God. God gives people time and asks them to repent and pleads with them, tells them, 
Obviously, sin is wrong. We've all felt guilty. We all know that we've done wrong things. What are you going to do with that? And he's saying, my son can take care of that. My son can take care of that. My son can take care of that. And if we choose to reject, God says, you've rejected the only way to be saved, to be forgiven. But he can't just snap his fingers and say, everybody's forgiven. No, if you choose to be in willful rebellion against God, then you are choosing to be punished. You're choosing a penalty. And then people will say, well, the penalty is too much. The penalty is wrong. The penalty of infinite judgment doesn't fit the crime of, you know, eight decades worth of sinning. We've talked about that a number of times at our church, and I think it's important that we have that ingrained in our system and our understanding. The punishment doesn't just fit the crime. Punishment always fits who the crime is against. We, we see this so clearly in our lives. We've, we've talked about this a number of times. If I'm playing basketball with Jeremiah and I punch Jeremiah because I'm angry at Jeremiah, what's going to happen to our relationship? It's going to be uh, a little bit broken for a little while, but he's a forgiving man. And it's kind of outside of my nature and character to punch somebody, so we'll be okay. What if I punch a cop? If I punch a cop... I'm going to go to jail. It's the exact same offense, but completely different responses. If I punch the president, I'm going to go to jail for a very long time, maybe even for life. Same exact crime, but a different punishment because the punishment fits who the crime is done against, who it's to. And so if we punch, if you will, with our sin, an infinitely holy God, then our punishment will be infinite and holy as well. We need to understand that. We need to know that. We need to comprehend that because that is a huge issue for a lot of people who do not like the idea of God. You go out into the world, you talk to people, and they don't like the idea of a loving God sending anyone to hell. Well, he doesn't force anyone to go. He's allowing them to make their choice, and if they choose it, he's allowing them to go. But there is going to be punishment. Now, I say all that to say this. In verses 18, the beginning, it's really seen at the beginning and the end, there's, a, there's an astounding reality to the way that God does judge people who reject him. Sometimes I think that maybe we, as believers, tend to think that God just punishes people equally. Just a judgment, blanket judgment over everyone. That's why I say God is righteous and he judges with perfect equity. Notice in verse 18, the nations were enraged, literally wrathful. The nations were wrathful, and your wrath came. Go all the way down to verse, bottom of verse 18. The small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. God is only giving punishment that fits the crime and who the crime was against. He gives wrath for those who are wrathful against him. He destroys those who are trying to destroy him, destroy the earth, destroy his kingdom. He's only operating in complete and perfect fairness. He will not give anyone a greater judgment than they deserve, a greater, harsher punishment. He will never do that. So if the nations are enraged, if they're wrathful, God gives them time to repent, time to repent, time to repent. He pleads with them, he pleads with them. He's doing that even now. And if they say no, then he gives them exactly what they deserve. We've talked about it before, but the coin of the consummation of the kingdom of God has two sides, salvation for believers and judgment for non-believers. And if anyone thinks that Jesus is unjust for his punishment of the wicked, just stick around for Revelation 12 through 15. You'll see the way that wickedness opposes God. Number five, 
A fifth reason why God is worthy of our praise and affection is he is kind and he generously rewards his people. He is kind and he generously rewards his people. This is in the middle of verse 18. The time came for the dead to be judged and the time came to reward God's slaves. My Bible says bondservants. It's literally the word doulos, which is slave. The prophets and the saints and those who fear your name. Do you hear how ironic that statement is? The, the time has come to reward the slaves. You and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a slave of Christ. He is your master. And yet he says, I will gladly reward you. It doesn't make sense in our understanding and terminology of what slavery is. You don't say to a slave, thank you so much. Here's a gift for your service. You say to the slave, I own you. I control you. I operate you. I don't give you anything in thanksgiving. I don't give you any reward. But our God is, is a kind master. Remember what he said to his disciples, you are my slaves, but no longer do I call you slave. I call you friend. If you're here this morning and you love Jesus Christ, you are a slave of Christ. Yes, because your will has been killed and God's will lives through you. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not only a slave, you are a friend of Christ. And you're not only a friend of Christ, you're a son or daughter of the most high God and a brother or sister to Jesus Christ himself. He is kind. He doesn't just hold us afar and say, how could I let a creature, one of my creation, into my presence? No, I'll save you, but let, let you stay far away. You'll be on earth and I'll be in heaven. No, he says, enter into the joy and the reward of your master. There are many parables in the Bible that speak of the slave being rewarded by the master. 2 Corinthians 5 says we're all going to stand before God to receive rewards. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll get rewarded, which is just a crazy thing to think about because the good works that you're, you're going to be rewarded for, they could only have been done by the grace of God anyway. That's why I say he is kind. Somebody says to me, what's so great about God? I would say you don't know how kind he is. You just don't know how kind he is. It leads to six, number six, and finally, he is Savior and desires to dwell with us. He is Savior and desires to dwell with us. He is King and he reigns in goodness. He is trustworthy and he fulfills all of his promises. He is almighty and he works with powerful patience. He is righteous and judges with perfect equity. He is kind and generously rewards his people. And he is Savior and desires to dwell with us. Verse 19, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. It's interesting that Revelation 11 opens with the temple on earth being measured and closes with the temple in heaven being opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great Hailstorm. What, what's happening here? This is all a representation of the presence and power of God. That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. You remember the Ark of the Covenant is where God dwelled. Obviously, God lives everywhere, right? He is omnipresent. He exists everywhere, but his presence specifically dwelt with his people in the Old Testament, in Israel, in that Ark of the Covenant, in the tabernacle, in the temple. 
While God exists everywhere, he, he dwells specially with his people. And it's powerful, right? The Ark of the Covenant was a display of the magnificent power of our God. Remember in 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant goes, or 2 Samuel goes into uh, the Philistine camp, and a lot of really bad things happen to the Philistines just simply because God's Ark, that box, and his presence in the box is in their camp. That's why there's flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm because this is the power and magnificence of God. But I think that what John is seeing and what he wants us to see and understand here is that the temple has been opened and the ark has been given to us. It's been thrust forward so that we can see it. We can be near it. We have access to it. Remember in the Old Testament and even at the beginning of the New Testament, only the high priest, only one day a year, had access to the Ark of the Covenant. Through the holy place, through the Holy of Holies, one day a year, one man could go into that place, into the presence of God. And he had to do so sprinkling blood on the altar. And we're told that the blood was never wiped off. It was never cleaned away. So this is a bloody Ark. There is blood splattered all over it because there's only through the blood of a sacrifice that we can enter into the presence of God. But here in verse 19, the temple of God has been opened to you and to me. And the ark of God has been placed in our midst. And we don't have to bring an offering of blood because the blood has already been placed on the ark. And it is the blood not of a bull or of a goat or of a lamb. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. That once for all satisfies the wrath of the Father, completely does away with the penalty of sin, breaks the power of sin, and gives us access to the presence of God forever. Without the blood of Jesus Christ being shed on our behalf, we have no forgiveness of sins. But because of Jesus Christ, because God is a Savior by nature, he wants to be with his people. And so he makes a way for it to happen. This is what he said in John 17. Remember when we studied the high priestly prayer. Father, I desire that they too whom you have given to me be with me where I am so that they may see your glory, the glory that you've given to me. I want them to be there. I want them to see the glory of God. I want them desperately he said that in John 14, I will come again and I will receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Thomas Goodwin, I love this quote. Thomas Goodwin, speaking of that passage, I'm coming again to get you, to take you home to be with me. He, he's speaking, uh, Thomas Goodwin, an old Puritan, he's pressing into that passage and he's trying to get at the heart of who Jesus is. Listen to his words. He says, it is as if Christ has said, the truth is I cannot even live without you. I shall never be quiet until I have you where I am so that we may never part again. This is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me nor my father's company if I do not have you with me. My heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you also shall have part of it. He loves you. That's why I say he is savior and he desires to dwell with us. So, we reach the end of Revelation chapter 11. This is the end of the first half of the book of Revelation. So we've made our way halfway through this book. We come to the end of this section 
We've seen six different ways that we might be able to respond to someone who would ask, so what? What's the big idea? What's the point? Why are you so enthralled with this God? There are so many reasons why. So many, so many reasons why God, in revealing himself to us, has shown us why he's worthy of our affection. We'll end here. When pastor says it this way, history is not rambling on to some haphazard ending. History is not just flopping along like a piece of bark in a stream. History is moving unyieldingly with every detail formed fully in the mind of God and being executed in his own way to his own end. History is moving specifically down a path culminating in the very present, precise events described in this book. And the message of the seventh trumpet and its message that everyone in the world needs to hear is that Jesus Christ is sovereign and he reigns. He's going to take the petty kingdoms of men and the monarchs of this world and he's going to take the rule out of their hand. He's going to become king of kings and lord of lords. The Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign. He is the one who has the right to rule the earth and someday he's going to take it back. There's coming a moment when that happens and it will be a moment of final judgment, and that judgment will have two parts. The judgment of the ungodly will be to take them into blessing. Uh, the, the judgment of the ungodly will be to take them into eternal judgment and torment, and the, the judgment of the godly will be to take them into blessing and a kingdom to an eternal new heaven and new earth. This is how history is going to end. So I ask you this morning, what will it be like for you on that last day? What will it be like for you? Will you receive reward or destruction? Let's end in Psalm 2, because I think Psalm 2 tells us exactly how we are to respond to this message. As Jesus, the Messiah, who will be given the nations as the inheritance and the very ends of the earth as his possession, will break them with the rod of iron, verse 9, will shatter them like earthenware, what are we to do? Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Worship the Lord. Do homage to the Son. Adore the Son. That he not become angry and you perish in the way because his wrath will soon be kindled. It will soon be ignited. But he's waiting. And he's pleading with you this morning. Would you worship him? How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The anger, the perishing, and the wrath in verse 12, Jesus Christ took all of that so that we could just enjoy refuge, rest, and salvation. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Revelation 11. We thank you for our Savior. God, we want the world to know that Jesus is king that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. There are so many misconceptions about our God, and so it is as if we are showing the world around us a movie, and they're saying, I don't get it. We're telling them about a book that we love, and they say, it just doesn't make sense to me. Father, I pray that this morning would solidify in our hearts why you are worthy of our praise, and that would in turn move us, motivate us to worship you now to sing in response to the greatness of our God.
We love you and we pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.